Welcome to The Essentials, an irregular discussion of challenges facing Canada and the world. As Canadians, polite and reasonable, but we also will not be pushed around. Well, I have to say, you're not laughing now, are you? Rising above the noise as we tackle key issues of the day. Uh, how many uh, chimpanzees can dance on the head of a pin? Nobody builds walls better than me. Free speech, human rights, immigration and democracy itself. Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. From Canada's Wild West Coast, it's The Essentials, with Tom Lupton and John Zacks. My fellow Americans, as a young boy, I dreamed of being a baseball, but tonight I say we must move forward, not backward. Upward, not forward, and always twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. Episode number seven today, John, seventh heaven for the Essentials Podcast. Here come the paychecks. <laughs> right. So we've been digging into a lot of very practical things over the past several podcasts, uh, marijuana legislation, proportional representation, the U.S. midterms, something a little different today, though. So we're going to talk about this potentially controversial issue as to whether or not humankind is progressing. Wow, and what a meaty term that is. I mean, I think <laughs> getting back to it, can we even define what progress means? I'm not sure we can. We can try, though. Okay, and, and we definitely will. So why don't we just take a little look over the past, I don't know, say four or 500 years of, of Western history, and I think we'll focus on Western history because we're living in a Western country, and let's just see to the extent to which maybe... We have progressed over this time. And so you said over the last four or 500 years. Why are we starting with that rough timeline? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting point. So, um, you know, around the time of 1450, I think this is a moment in history. We often have these things called axis points or hinge points mm -hmm. in history. And 1450 is a remarkable time. Several things are sort of happening in and around this time. Fall of Constantinople in 1453 to the Ottoman Turks. Uh, Gutenberg invents his printing press. The Hundred Years' War more or less comes to an end. The last vestiges of the Black Plague are disappearing or have disappeared by this point. And so it is at this moment that we're at this precipice of human invention and endeavor. And there's a really interesting idea that comes out of it. I do love that I'm working with a historian who just quoted all that without looking at his notes. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Anyway, yeah, we're, we're moving from the Dark Ages, the well-named Dark Ages, right. into the scientific, re, uh, scientific Revolution, the Age of Enlightenment. Then we get people like Copernicus, Galileo, Darwin, well, Darwin's much later, but Newton um, and, and Descartes and these philosophers who start to push us forward, scientists who push us forward, and you do start to see, yeah, in the 14, 15, 1600s, huge leaps forward as we start to discover things like germ theory and all these, you know, the way that our bodies work, the way that nature works in a way that we just hadn't before. And all this comes from a very simple notion, and this very simple notion was this idea of human agency. Mm -hmm. That after all these things have taken place, all the horrible things that have that have happened up and up leading uh, up until 1450 in the Renaissance, it's almost like people sort of woke up for a moment and just said, you know what, we can actually make our life today better. We don't actually have to live for the moment when we're going to uh, meet St. Peter at the pearly gates and hopefully get in that 
human agency and human endeavor and the idea of human uh, experience on Earth can be better. And that leads to a blossoming of science, like you've mentioned, art, uh, and just life in general. And not just better for society, but better for individuals, where individuals start to matter in a way that they hadn't in previous eras. And we see the rise of great individuals, so notably Martin Luther. And one of the things Martin Luther does is he comes along and he says, look, I'm going to apply reason to church doctrine. So show me where it says in the Bible that we can't do all these things. And no one could. And what this does is it unleashes this moment of reason and rationality that we're still living in today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a couple of numbers for you. In 1820, there's just under 1.1 billion people on the planet, of which more than a billion lived in poverty. So more than 90% of the planet living in poverty. And those improvements obviously really kick into high gear in the last 50 years because then we really start to see things ramping up in recent times. Yeah, and in 1820, it's interesting that you point out that year because here we are, 1820, the post-Napoleonic world, and we're just on the precipice of beginning one of the most important human events ever. It's been kicking off in Britain for a little while still, but in Europe it was delayed thanks to Napoleon. And of course, I'm referring to the Industrial Revolution. Right, which, which... had impacts on everybody's individual life. And we are going to reference the Industrial Revolution repeatedly in this show because it leads to a blossoming of thinkers who see the Industrial Revolution as absolute progress, but also to juxtapose that, thinkers who think that it isn't progress, that we've gone backwards. Right. And we're also seeing huge explosions just in pure numbers of people, right? Population is swelling at that point. But we're still managing to bring people out of poverty. So it's not just percentages. It's pure numbers of lives that are improved by science and progress and and technology and philosophy. I'm glad you bring that up because there's simple inventions uh, or reinventions in certain cases that are going to lead to that blossoming. And I'm going to reference the invention of concrete, which the the Romans had discovered. And it took us 1,500 years to rediscover a Roman invention. And what concrete does is it allows us to build things like sewers. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but hanging around in raw sewage doesn't do much good for your health. They say that the invention that has been most um, beneficial to humankind beyond any other medical advance is just clean drinking water. Remarkable. Vaccines as well would be number two. Uh, I I love this little anecdote I saw the other day. Nathan Rothschild was surely the richest man in the world when he died in 1836. But how did he die? Simple infection could have been treated today with antibiotics that would have been sold for less than a couple of cents. So today, only the very poorest people in the world would die in the way that Nathan Rothschild, the richest man on earth, died in the 19th century. You know, I always find it interesting when people talk about what time uh, of, of human existence would you like to go back to? <laughs> and I think people think of, oh, the, the Belle Epoque, for instance, yeah. I'd like to go and hang out then. Or, you know, I'd love to be around during the French Revolution to see what would happen. My God, people are dying of gangrene, tuberculosis. Yeah. They're dying of all these infectious diseases that just simply aren't things anymore and that's because of reason and science so in so many ways we are living in such a better time now having a child up until 30 50 years ago was a very very dangerous proposition it still is in some parts of the world and we can part of the reason i bring this up we consider infant mortality kind of an important indicator of the health of a nation and progress but it's better all over the world even in sub-saharan africa tom where it still sucks you know you're getting you know 80 or 90 deaths per thousand live births those aren't great numbers by today's standard and you think of in canada there's 4.5 per thousand top country in the world, Slovenia, 1.6 death per thousand live births. 
But even in sub-Saharan Africa, like I said, 80, 90 per thousand births, that compares to hundreds decades and centuries ago. And even those Canadian numbers, if you were to take away sort of uh, maybe the dark side of Canadian history and society, which is our the First Nations numbers, which are um, proportionally closer to yeah. sub-Saharan Africa than they are the rest of the country. If you took Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, and looked at those infant mortality numbers, it, it basically doesn't happen, does mm-hmm. it? And, and any other indicator you want to look at, life expectancy, poverty, um, war and violence, crime decreasing all over the world, and, and then some of these kind of softer, more philosophical notions, democracy spreading, human rights spreading, education, Tom, particularly education of girls mm-hmm. spreading all over the world, and, and just people's personal autonomy and liberty is being realized and actualized all over the world. There is no greater indicator of a success of a society than the education levels of women. And just to build on that idea of war, and we see in the news about all the horrible things in Syria and Yemen, uh, the Rohingyans, you know, all the horrible things that are happening in the world. But it's worth noting that more people died in the Second World War than in all the wars that have been fought since. And in fact, many historians in 1990 referred to this period of history from 45 to 90 as the long peace. And it's just carried on for another 30 years since. So in, in almost every measure we can think of, we're living in a better time than we ever have at any point in the history of humanity. And to build on your thought about war, you know, they point out, well, even during, during those world wars that killed so many millions of people, there's still more people dying because of plague, and you don't see that today. Well, I, the Spanish flu after the yeah. First World War killed more people than the war did. Right. Unbelievable. sounds like we're living in a veritable utopian society, John, <laughs> but is the party coming to an end? Is, is this the end? Or are we on the continuum still? That's debatable. That's going to be tough to answer. Um, there is a lot of potential coming our way. You know, we talked about the scientific revolution. We talked about the industrial revolution. Well, we're just living through a new revolution right now, this digital revolution. And we're we're in the middle of it, so we don't totally know yet where it's going to take us. We don't have the benefit yet of hindsight. And it's interesting. We can look back on uh, societies, histor- his- historically speaking, and see great empires, if you want to consider the American empire or the Western culture empire, uh, and we see examples of them coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they knew it was coming to an end. And, you know, I don't think so. Uh, so perfect examples. We look at Rome, how Rome collapsed. It was a society built on expansion. Obviously, Gibbons writes his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and he points out a number of things, including lead poisoning, which is interesting. Mm. But needless to say, there's a lot of reasons why the Roman Empire collapses. Same with Greece and Egypt, historically speaking. The Ottoman Empire makes a decision in the late 17th century to tip towards a more conservative religious approach. Um, is this a symptom of the problem, this tip into religious conservatism, which is exactly what happened in Rome as well, or it was just the cause of the decline? And it's a, it's a debate historians have constantly. Or is it just inevitable that societies are going to rise and fall? And, and to take your example and go to contemporary society, there are a lot of people who wonder if the last remaining superpower, the United States, is in its death knell right now, and, and we're seeing the decadence and end of a great society. Right. Every time Black Friday shows up, <laughs> it, it's, it seems ludicrous that we'd have this level of consumption. Um, 
you know, there's other society, examples of societies that look like they're about to collapse, but then haven't. So if we juxtapose two Asian societies in the 19th century, China dominated, divided up by European powers, especially after the post-opium wars. Juxtapose that with their neighbor just across the Sea of Japan. Japan, obviously, in 1865, they run up against Commodore Perry and make a decision. And it's two different approaches. The Chinese approach was to maintain with their dynastic approach and to dismiss Western influence. And the Japanese approach was to open their doors, to embrace progress. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't want to talk too much about what happens to Japan in the mid-20th century, leading up to the World Wars, but you can't deny that over the 70 years since Commodore Perry in 1865, Japan rose and China struggled until now. And, and Japan has some problems facing it right now with an aging population and an economy that seems stagnating, stagnating a little bit. But they do seem like solvable problems. And life is better in Japan than it is in China. So during that Meiji Restoration, they made a decision to embrace progress. So coming back to where we are now with, is it the barbarian invasions of Western society? Are we at a tipping point? And if we are, how do we stop ourselves. And you worry too, you know, a lot of people have already been thinking about this and Tom, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit much. Uh, but you know, this, this thought of capitalism as, you know, the capitalist will sell you the noose to hang him with. And we wonder if we're seeing this with the spread of arms, with nuclear war, with a military industrial complex and, and more than anything with climate change. Right. So let's talk about climate change a little bit there. Are we at a point where the rapture is coming? Is this, is this a bonfire of the vanities? I mean, are we at the stage now where all the things that we hold dear and true, uh, the nature of consumption, the society that is built on the, the, this perception that our economy can grow forever, which seems mm-hmm. ludicrous. We're in a finite world. Like our economy is going to be able to keep growing. Is this going to lead to our collapse? We see all these potential green technologies on the horizon, but they seem to be coming in a little bit too slowly. And the last few reports that have come out from the UN and from other intergovernmental bodies, they paint a pretty, not just bleak picture, but they suggest that we have crossed these tipping points. You know, when they say that you had to keep the earth at two degrees Mm. above pre-industrial levels and we're already at one degree and and it seems now impossible to keep it below two degrees that is a real concern and and i guess where i land on this personally tom interested to hear your perspective but Mm. i feel like 40 50 years from now life for humanity is going to be pretty awesome i'm just not sure if we get there yeah it has the potential so uh, is brexit is donald trump uh is this swing into more extreme versions of governance around the world is this the canary in the coal mine Are these blips on the map? Are we as a human species going to be able to prevent what scientists are pointing out as an inevitable disaster unless we act? Or are they symptomatic of of a society or a civilization that's lashing out on its last breaths? Can we progress to the point where we save ourselves from ourselves? I feel like Karl Marx would have some interesting things to say here. You know, do you want to weigh in on Marx? Well, Marx is, was a response to the Industrial Revolution. He looks yeah. up and sees this progress and everyone talking about the great golden age that we're living in. And he actually turns around and says, well, actually, it's just the same old story for masses of the population. Mm-hmm. That They are simply the pawns of the working class or the, sorry, the working class are the pawns of the industrialists. Mm-hmm. The proletariat are the victims of the bourgeoisie. And when we see things like the rise of the 1%, at the expense of uh, everyone else. I think the 1% in America has more money than the next than the bottom uh, 250 million yeah, or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that. 
Um, you know, it, it does remind me of, of two other uh, sociologists discussing population in the 19th century, and I'm going to reference Thomas Malthus, who was famously a killjoy for predicting the end of the world, <laughs> uh, and Esther Bosrup, and, and they have different perspectives on, on progress. Thomas Malthus, if you can imagine a line graph on an X and Y axis, he juxtaposed population growth with food production. And during the industrial time, when population was growing at an exponential rate, he, and he, he said that population will continue to grow at an exponential rate. But then he also said food production is growing at a geometric rate, which means that very early on, we're going to see population outstrip the ability of us to produce food, which is going to lead to a state of what he referred to as misery. And he saw society tipping into states of massive famine uh, and a huge decline of population. Is that what we've seen? Well, definitely not. That is, that's not what's happened at all. Because what Malthus couldn't consider is what Esther Bosrup did consider. And she said, basically, that the, the potential of human invention is so great that we will constantly invent our ways out of our problems, which, John, it's kind of what's happened, hasn't it? And make them out to be a boogeyman all you want, but companies like Monsanto, they've given us high yields of food. Look, no one has died from GMO crops anywhere ever. Yeah, yeah. So the question then is, is Esther Bothrop's prediction, is, is her prediction running out though? I mean, maybe every society and every generation has said, oh, this is it, this is the end. And that is actually true, that everyone has predicted that this is the end of the world. But, mm -hmm. but someone's got to be right at some point. Or do they? <laughs> maybe. Hopefully not. <laughs> so, John, getting back to that original question that we posited right at the top of the show. We've spoken about how wonderful everything seems to be going, but philosophically speaking, John, are we actually progressing? So most, I think, scientists and philosophers would say yes, and you could reference some of these Enlightenment thinkers, people like John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, and, and they talk about this idea of the state of nature, um, a, a perhaps um, thought experiment or perhaps historical condition that humanity lived in, in the absence of government, in the absence of laws and society, mm. total anarchy. And they say life would suck there. We're, we're better off for having government. We're better off for having society, for having science and technology and for having laws. There are other people, someone like perhaps Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who says, no, we were better off when we were living in that idyllic state of nature, you know, maybe referencing the terminology he would use politically incorrect now, but the savages of North America, where I think he saw they were kind of running around in this idyllic paradise, not worrying about the kind of entrapments of not modern society and always trying to keep up with the Joneses and worry about your clothes and your car instead of these important spiritual community considerations, which people like Rousseau would argue were getting away from. And that speaks to Rousseau's perceptions on humanity, that humans are born in a state of good, and we don't need those kind of constraints, right? And a lot of people out there would maybe make that argument. Yes, maybe materially our lives are better, but we've we've gotten away from our moral fiber. We've gotten away, you know, we're not close with our families and communities in a way that we used to be. And for spiritual people out there, they would might argue that we've lost our spiritual government uh, um, compass. And that's a fair argument to make. 
How about modern thinkers? When we think about 20th century philosophers, you know, Rousseau was living in a time of great upheaval after yeah. the English Civil War uh, leading up to the, the French Revolution. How about nowadays in this moment that we're in now of seeming endless progress? So I think about a guy by the name of John Rawls who talked a lot about how to create the society that you would want to live in. And one of the things he talks about a lot is inequality. And that's something that I think people, uh, opponents of progress reference a lot. Well, there's so much inequality and growing inequality. And that's a concern for a lot of people right now and a legitimate concern. But for Rawls, he says, listen, inequality in itself isn't necessarily a problem. If I'm at the bottom end and you, Tom, are at the top end and there's an improvement in society and you gain the vast amount of benefits from it, the vast proportion of benefits from it, even if my life is a little bit better off, that's still fair. Even if the inequality continues to grow, if I'm at the bottom end and my life is a little bit incremental better, hey, play on. It reminds me of a famous speech that Margaret Thatcher made in British Parliament in the 1980s, where she was condemning her labor rivals uh, across the floor from her. And she said, basically, you would rather we all suffered so that the gap between us was smaller. And she said, I would rather that the top people's lives were better so long as the poor people's lives were better as well. All levels of income are better off than they were in 1979. But what the honorable member is saying is that he would rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That way you will never create the wealth for better social services as we have. And what a policy. Yes, he would rather have the poor poorer, provided the rich were less rich. That is a liberal policy. Of course, I guess the only concern, Tom, is if income inequality continues to grow and expand, that you're you're getting into dangerous territory and there could be some kind of a revolution or a backlash from the bottom end of society. So here we are in the 21st century, and I think we would agree that life is better for humans on Earth now than it has ever been at any point ever. I mean, I think, you know, when we we speak of Brexit and there was this glow of nostalgia that people thought they were going to take Britain back to where it was in 1960. Well, it was worse in 1960. You want to make America great again? America was worse in the 1970s than it is now. Life is better for everyone today. Yeah, it is quantifiably better you know, yes, are we losing our way spiritually? Well, you could make that case, but that's also something that we can't quantify and and we're not going to be able to argue conclusively either way. And I think we ought to be very careful when we start speaking about the good old days as if we want to turn the clock back. Uh, I don't think it works like that. Progress is a, is a conveyor belt. And if you try and jump off that conveyor belt, you end up in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Would you like to go back to a world uh, without, you know, some of the racial tensions you have today or or spiritual concerns? Yeah. But you're also going to live not just without cell phones, but without vaccinations and clean water. And John, just to be clear, we're not saying that life is perfect right now on Earth, are we? No, no. And, And there are some real concerns about life right now. We're really worried about what climate change might do to our species in the next 20, 40 years. There is the potentially growing specter of nuclear war, at least in the last year or two, Tom. Um, You might call these externalities, but they're really not. They're built into this idea of progress and, and perhaps caused by it.
Thanks to progress, we have created the vehicles which could make ourselves extinct, either climate change, nuclear holocaust, or something yet to be discovered. Maybe it's robots taking over the world. Mm. But within that, I think there's also a feeling of confidence. There's also a feeling of hope. And I think working in schools, we see that all the time, don't we? We see new generations coming along who we think can take over and lead this world. If, If the world lasts long enough for them to take it over. All right, yes, that's a little bit bleak, but I guess the concern is that there is this rise right now in pretty extreme authoritarianism around the world, Tom. Putin, Duterte, Viktor Orban, Erdogan, Bolsonaro now in Brazil, and and arguably even Trump showing tendencies towards authoritarianism. Am I concerned about right-wing politics? No, the concern is extreme right-wing totalitarianism, and that could threaten any kind of progress or stability that the world has. We don't want to confuse this pod with us being the promoters of liberal progress. No. Uh, we are promoters of progress for progress' sake and how it betters society, but we also don't want to be confused by the terms progress and change because change isn't necessarily progress either. Progress is the product of making our life better, I would say. Let's find some stability and also challenge each other with good ideas across the board. The world is a vampire. 